Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. The hell that I was in, I'd do anything to be better. I thought like a lunatic. You kind of just have like that little bit of hope that it will get better. You're gonna make it. This began my surrender. I am a witness of my own growth. It's a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I just have to say, it works if you work it. My story, that's what I share. You're listening to Far From Finished, a weekly podcast where we share new, real-life stories of hope and triumph, told by the people who live them. Today's story comes to us from... My name is Earl. My sobriety date is November the 24th. 2007. When I think about my life before my addiction, I, I have to go back to when I was uh, my formative years. I had opportunity to grow up in a religious uh, environment. and in, in, in that religious environment, I learned how to live by a lot of rules and I had learned how to live by modified behaviors or expectations. And I did that really, really well. I knew what was expected of me and I knew um, how to operate in that. But did I do it perfectly? No, I didn't do it perfectly. But there was definitely um, some rules and, and some um, beliefs that, that I lived by that guided my, my lifestyle. So, you know, growing up in church, I didn't do secular things. I didn't go to movies. I didn't go to you know, just do things my my friends in school were doing. I stayed kind of cocooned in my church environment. I did things only with people that I went to church with, if you will. I even alienated my my family um, to an to an extent, and I with some regret in that because those those are memories that I didn't get the chance to build because I segregated myself. Um, you know, growing up. You know, I, 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 as I reflect back now, there were periods of times, and, and you'll hear this when people are in recovery, it's like almost a common theme about us, even when although we're not related, we don't know each other, that we, we have this sense of not belonging or this awkwardness when we're either among our friends or family or in social environments or whatever. And we could mimic like we got it all together. And we, and we, but, 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 but it's sometimes noticeable that some things we do are on the extreme. And so if I wanted your attention, I did things in, my, in, in extreme behavior, you know, to get your attention, to get you to like me. I didn't know what I was doing back then was actually creating what is called, as I know today, character defects. But I would go out and I would do things in my behavior to, you know, make you like me. Things to myself that, you know, were necessarily, not necessarily detrimental to myself, but, you know, maybe I didn't really want to go to this event with you, but... If I didn't go, I was afraid that you wouldn't like me as much anymore. You wouldn't invite me again. So those are things that I, these are behaviors that I learned how to uh, live by. You know, I, I, I grew up, you know, with a sense of abandonment. And as I looked, and I'm only, the only reason why I know about abandonment today is because I'm in recovery. So pre-recovery or in my active addiction, I didn't know that, that I was living a life because, believe it or not, at 52 years old, you know, 
having the pain of my father walking out when I was five years old and, and physically and, and, and being able to remember seeing that action, not knowing how it was going to negatively impact my life from there on, but it did. So I, I grew up with a life of, uh, I was always curious about things. I, I liked nice things, but I didn't come from means by any, by any, uh, by any, I, I didn't just, I didn't come from a life of means. So uh, since that was a reason, since before that reason, I learned how to go to work. So I developed work ethics because I was hungry. I was tired of being poor, right? So nothing was handed to me. So I started going to work and and, and all those things. Um, and, and, and in per- of terms of personal relationships, again, they were just they were just basically compartmentalized to people in church. When I was um, when I was uh, about. 19 years old, um, I had an opportunity to go work in the gaming industry, and this was actually a game changer for me because I'm now I'm leaving a religious, organized religious environment. Now I'm going into the gaming industry, and I was one of the younger people working in an industry. And again, I was always curious about things. I, you know, live, work living in that in that religious environment. I didn't do things that people were doing in the secular world, so I didn't know about drinking, or I didn't know about smoking pot, or I didn't. I was totally naive to all those things. However, that would all change when I went into the gaming industry. When I went into the gaming industry, my eyes got open to what is out there in life and how you can actually enjoy yourself on a different level. So I was introduced to, by sheer curiosity, beer. Beer was my thing. I remember my dad used to drink beer, so I got into the beer, and it was fine. But I noticed with me right out the gate, for some reason, that I would drink much more than average people would drink. So I found myself real, really early on starting drinking six packs right out the gate to, when that, and that accelerated to 12 packs and 18 packs of beer. That's how they started to sell them. And I started really enjoying that. And then, um, um, you know, what it did for me, and it's very important that you guys understand this, is what beer did is it gave me a sense of confidence that I lacked outside of not drinking it. When I drank beer, it gave me this persona, this personality that kept to that that awkwardness and that inability to fit in now, I all of a sudden, I feel like I belong in, in this, in social circles now. I, I can interact with people. I can talk to girls more comfortably. I can dance a little better. The, this is what beer did for me. So it, 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 it was almost like putting fuel in a car because a car doesn't move unless it has fuel. So that's what alcohol, I learned, did for me. Well, actually, I was working in the game industry as a crafts dealer. And I remember one night we went out and we were, it was about 4 o'clock in the morning. Instead of going home, I was going to a bar because that's what we did. And someone actually had cocaine. I was fascinated by this because I remember seeing cocaine in the 70s on, you know, in a, in a, on television or in movies. They would have this little spoon and it just looked, it looks very glamorous. They had a little gold spoon and the people just romantically just, you know, we call it tooting or just snorting it up their nose. And it was just like cool. You know, your, your, your shirt is unbuttoned, you got your gold chain, and on the gold chain, you got your gold spoon. It was just too cool, right? So actually, for this, for this you know, we're driving down the street in, in, in New Jersey, in Atlantic City, and uh, someone pulled it out and asked me, you know, if I would like to try it out. And I said, absolutely, I was curious. So I tried it out, and it wasn't that big of a deal. I kind of felt a sense of heightenedness. In other words, I became more alert. But there was something that was that was that about that that just I wanted a little I wanted to taste it again I wanted to try it again. So I remember vividly you know we went to this like club it was it was late at night, like a bar club in the middle of the night and we you know we're dancing and we're doing things but in the back of my mind that whatever I felt from that snort 
I wanted to try it again. Like, how can I try this again? So before long, I learned how to buy it. I went and got my own little spoon, right? I was really cool. It was really cool. I had my little ritual that I would do at work. And, and, and one, one of the things I discovered about it was that um, when I went to work and I was a crafts dealer, it made me more sharper. I mean, I was sharp. I was snorting cocaine. I could deal crafts faster. I could calculate numbers faster. So it gave me this... Not only did it energize me or fueled me, but it almost gave me this sense that I'm smarter, right? I'm firing on all cylinders here, and that's what it did for me. But that would not last long because one day I was at my house, and my brother had a friend of My brother was just not into this. And his friend, whoever his friend was, and I can't even remember his name to this day, he saw me with a little bit of cocaine and saw me snorting it, and he said, let me show you what you could do with that. And what he showed me that I could do with that changed my life. He took that powder and he turned it into um, a smokable uh, solution. Okay? And it was called Freebasin. And that changed my entire life. He cooked it, put it in a smokable pipe, and I was off to the races from the first inhale. It just changed me. And there started from that time, that was probably 19... Uh, 88 and um, I went on about a two-year run with that and um, it was um, glorious it changed me um, it started depleting my pockets uh, I ran through credit cards with it uh, I still went to work because I had to finance my addiction I had to finance my house and uh, and I lived that life and then I you know eventually um, I I, uh, I had enough now what I walked away what at that time what I walked away from was I had strong work ethics that I had in, um, in, in you know, late teens and, and in my tw early 20s. And so what happened is when that addiction started to be, when that behavior became an addiction, it did start to interfere with my work. So I found myself either going to work late or calling in. So one time I ended up, I, was, I think I was working two jobs. I was dealing at night and I was doing cable, I guess, in the daytime or whatever. And I found, I found myself in a position where I decided I wasn't going to go to work that day for that cable job. So I did what's called a no-call, no-show. So I know that would qualify me for instant termination. So what I did was, you know, I learned how to be crafty and manip manip manipulative in my addiction. And I said, well, I'm not going to lose my job. So what I did was I put myself in rehab. And I put myself in rehab, and I went away for 28 days to save that job, and I did save that job. But what I learned in rehab was that I wasn't ready yet. Okay? I, I, I hadn't used enough. I hadn't actually collected enough damage in my life and that's what I was told but there was something that did happen in that 28 days a therapist did tell me that I would lose that marriage so I was married at that time for about eight years and she told me this marriage you will not sustain and within two years I was out of that marriage done excuse me within five within I was married about four years when I went into that and she told me that I would lose that marriage within five years I lost, I lost that marriage because we married for a total of um, t 10 years, something like that. So I, my, please excuse my math. But the bottom line is <clears throat> within five years of going to that rehab, I lost the marriage. It was over. So, that's when the, so from that time on, um, I went on a long journey with an affair with cocaine for probably the next 19 years. So it was on and off. I was a functioning um, um, person that, that, that did cocaine on the side, right? So I went to work, I paid my bills, and I just lived a, I lived a lie. 
essentially I just lived a lie. And um, I had to put myself back in treatment again in early, in early 2000. I had moved to Las Vegas in 1993, and in early 2000, I, I, was, I had to go back into it because my life blew up. But I, um, but I want to share with you how I got to where I'm at today. So um, back in, uh, uh, went back in 2002, and I stayed sober. When I say back, I went back in treatment in 2002, and I uh, stayed sober for about 18 months. Now I'm this executive in a large casino in Las Vegas, and I'm doing really good financially. And um, I was single, right? I, was, I just blew through my second marriage. And I was living in Las Vegas, and I, I, I was living a high life, and it was just glorious. And um, I was able to start securing cocaine without paying for it now. And um, that wasn't helpful because I couldn't run out of the stuff. And it created such a soul sickness in me and emptiness um, that I didn't even really truly want to be here anymore. And there was a, um, this behavior uh, went on up until 2007, uh, November the 23rd. And on that day, it started uh, that my, my addictions and alcoholism started to affect that, uh, adversely my ability to uh, not getting trouble at my job. Event after event after event, I found myself in HR explaining my different behaviors. So my job is now becoming, um, I'm being threatened uh, by my own behaviors of losing this. Unfortunately, um, that job had, I had taken on the identity of that executive who I was. And that gave me my joy and it gave me my fulfillment. So when that job became apparent that I was losing it, I was losing my identity at the same time. So my use, and ex, uh, my use of cocaine increased, my use of alcohol increased uh, to the point where uh, I wasn't eating properly and that was my total existence. And I, and I, and I left the beer alone and I, and I graduated to the vodka and so it was vodka and cocaine. That's what I essentially lived on, and cigarettes. And so that's, that was my life. And, um, and I'll never forget that dark day that um, I had spent about... Um, probably about 18 hours in a state of what I know today is drug-induced psychosis. And to the, to the average person, that means I was paranoid for 18 hours. That means I was on high alert. That means uh, more times than not that um, everything in my house that was plugged up into a wall had to be unplugged because I needed to hear when the Henderson police was going to come arrest me, all right? Um, I, you know, I had guns in my house. Um, and I would just basically stare at uh, two different doors the way my house is set up because I'm waiting for the cops to come. And I have, I'm just waiting. I don't know why I was waiting, but I knew what I was doing was wrong. And so everyone outside my door had to know that I was in there getting high. And so I, I ran this deal for, 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 for eight hours. You know, and on and that last day, um, I was, you know, I was, you know, in my house. And, um, in, you know, uh, I found myself not with any clothes on and, um, and two guns. And um, I just had enough. I, I, I'm losing my job. I'm losing my identity. I can't stop doing this stuff. And why do I need to be around? But the thing about it, I wasn't, wasn't going to kill myself. But this is what I was going to do. If the cops came in my house to get me, I would have killed myself. That was the plan. I wasn't going to do a murder-suicide. I wasn't going to try to, you know, I wasn't doing suicide by, I wasn't trying to do assisted suicide. It wasn't, that wasn't the case here. 
you know, unfortunately, I'm not proud to say this, but it did get this dark where I had a loaded gun in my mouth and in my temple. Okay, and I held that position for hours upon hours. It's only by God's grace that I'm even here to tell such a story because it got dark. I mean, I lost my soul. All right. I knew better, but I couldn't do better. Right. And so um, and I did. I did get a knock. I got that knock. I mean, it was like, boom, I got the knock. And my heart was jumping out of my chest, you can well imagine. And for some reason, I was able to calm down a little bit, and I found out it was actually my ex, it was, it was my ex-wife knocking on the door. And I let her in, and she saw the house was a wreck, saw that I was a wreck, coerced me to get dressed, took me over her house, and I just, that was it. I surrendered. That was my surrender my, my surrender point. Now, what I had in my advantage up at that point is I had a foundation of having two inpatient treatments that I knew that I had in my history. And I had uh, two outpatient episodes. So I went to intensive outpatients. So I had those things in my arsenal. So what I was able to do is jump right into AA, get a sponsor, and go through the steps. And my life has just dramatically changed. I had enough um, recovery in me to know, because like what I didn't share was the fact that I had been in and out of AA all this time. I've been in AA, every time I went to treatment, obviously I had to go, go into AA, and that's what I did. So I, I've always embraced it. I went back in 2002, I was, I was 18 months, I was going in, into AA. And so I had that fundamental foundation. It was there. You know, AA actually put a wrench in all the stuff I was doing anyway, in terms of, not, in terms of using comfortably. So there was no more using comfortably once you start going there, right? So I had this, this induction, this foundation, this education, this experience in AA of how to live sober, right? And I knew what the process was in terms of getting, I just never, never surrendered. So, you know, for example, there was always a lurking idea. There was always a notion there was, that I could come up with that I could use again. If the right circumstances, if this happens, if that happens, I will drink again. And I have to tell you, since I've been in recovery, a lot of things have happened that I didn't have to do. And I deliberately did not drink or use over. And this past uh, Jan excuse me, um, November the 23rd, I, uh, I, excuse me, 24th is my birthday. So I celebrated nine years. So I'm in my 10th year right now. This November will be actually 10 years. So 52 years old. So I'm just really, really grateful that uh, I have this as a foundation. When I think about that, that day that I basically, uh, my defining moment was the fact that I escaped death in that moment, right? It, it, I, instead of when I heard the door knock and I realized it wasn't a cops, it gave me a sense of ease. If it was a cops, we probably wouldn't be here talking right now. So at that point, I bottomed out. I had enough. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have, that was it. That was it for me. So for me, it was like this, this hope that I don't have to live that way. I think I, I, it, I, it came apparent to me that I got a shot here, right? And so again, I, I and then I just basically just de end up detoxing myself, right? And then I just, I mean, it wasn't. I just went to, to AA like the next day. It took me about two weeks that I just immersed myself in um, like recovery movies. You know, you know, people bottoming out and going to AA and those type of things. And, um, um, and, and, and reading, um, you know, uh, material from AA and then conceding, right? And then jumping into AA and saying I need a sponsor and then immersing myself in that environment. It was very interesting. Um, 
I went to what is called Las Vegas Roundup. And, and like I said, I had previous episodes where I was actually sober. So that means when I went to the Las Vegas Roundup, which is an annual, uh, let's call it convention for AA in Las Vegas, um, I would actually run into people that knew me prior to. They knew me when I was sober. And it was obvious to them. They hadn't seen me for five years. So they knew I was out. Out means out using and drinking again. And so, um, uh, so it took a lot of courage. When, at, when, and there, there's a thing they do, it's called the countdown. All the way, when they start with the person with the most or the most time in recovery to the person who's just starting out recovery. Like, in other words, the person who basically drank 24 hours ago. So this will be their first day in recovery. And so um, the defining moment was in that I stood up and acknowledged that this is my first day. This is my first 24 hours. So I, that basically shattered the shame of holding that in all that time, even though everyone already knew it, right? But I had to take that leap into it. So when I stood up and I jumped into it, and I was embraced, right? And so when I did go into AA, what happened was um, I, I got a sponsor, and we started working together. And I just basically started putting myself in that environment on a daily basis. I was going to multiple meetings a day. And um, I think I was between jobs. I, I had left my one job, and I had basically four months before I started my next job. So I left in November, end of November, and I had my, first, my job was going to start April 1. So I took from that time period... And I just lived in AA for all that in time, so that entire time. So basically, I immersed myself in recovery. That means I'm going to meetings, I'm, I'm going to panels, I'm reading my book, I'm talking to my sponsor. Everything in my life centered around it. I didn't do anything else. So when April 1 came, when I walked into my new job, I walked in as a new person, right? And that's exactly what my transformation has been. And ever since then... Um, you know, I, I, you know, I started unwinding out of the gaming industry, and it's very interesting because I'm now working in the recovery industry, you know, behavioral healthcare, and and it was really, you know, I was in the gaming industry. My job was to make, you know, entertain people. You know, I was a, a marketing executive, casino host, so I used to make people's lives and their experiences really pleasurable. That was my job, right? And I used to add value to their life when they would come to Las Vegas, our customers. And so when I, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I had an opportunity to meet an incredible human being. I, I, met, I met someone who became very, very special to me, who worked in this industry and was very influential in this industry. And, um, you know, I was telling him that, you know what, it, it's really time for me to, on two on twofold, it's time for me to get out the gaming industry. And they, essentially, the gaming industry had enough of me, and I had enough of them. It was just time. And I was just presented with an opportunity, and this person said to me, you know, Earl, you'll probably make a good interventionist because I do interact with people. And I actually started training for that, and, then, and, 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 and I did a couple interventions. And then eventually I ended up working in the department I work in now, which is a treatment consultant. And today we get to work with people to help transform their lives by putting them in treatment for alcohol and substance abuse. Today, I get to add value. Instead of entertaining people, I get to... I remember someone that I really respect in the industry let me know what I do today is rescue, and I help the process of rescuing and transforming people's lives. So it's not, it's not contingent or hinging on entertaining them, but they can get the... You know, once they get clean and sober, they can enjoy life on a whole different level without that. So that's what I spend my days doing today. Is talking to families, talking to individuals. I don't care what walk of life they come from, whose lives are shattered. And, what, and, and one of the things 
that is really interesting is I get to take my dark days. I get to take those empty days and those days of low self-esteem and those days of not being sure that I fit in anymore and let people know that they can actually transform their lives, that they don't have to live stuck in the expectations of others, living on other people's opinions of them, that they can be okay living in their own skin, right? And so I, I, I get that opportunity and I get to, you know, take those things and even address it when I get a little squirrely in my emotions and calm myself down, let me know I'm in a safe place in my life. But yes, the one of the one of the, the, the most interesting things that I really get joy out of is touching other people's lives through the life that I live. So therefore today, I realized that I needed to walk through those things. I needed to experience those things, not knowing down the road what value that would bring to other lives I get to touch today. And I have to tell you today, there's not um, a population of people that I don't interact with or a population by, by way of profession. So whether you're an attorney, whether you're a doctor, whether you are a police officer, uh, or military, doesn't matter. I get to touch your life today, right? And I get to see broken lives, broken relationships, mend because someone has started the healing process to change their life. And I can play a small, small role in that. And I'm just really grateful to God that He's given me the opportunity to be around to be able to do this. I would like to share that if a person is on a fence and they're not sure whether, and this could come from the individual using, it can come from a family member that there's resources out here that you can actually get help. You don't have to die prematurely. You don't have to lose your family. You don't have to lose your job, right? But one thing you do have to do is you have to ask for help. And help and resources are here while you still have breath in your body. And I tell you what, life is actually worth it, taking that time to ask for help. And, to, and, and I like to use this term. You know, take an errand. Run on an errand to save your life because your life is actually worth it. And we have a lot of things that at our disposal today to get us to where we need to be. But you do have to, you have to ask for help. Because until you're ready and you're, you're ready to surrender and ask for that help and receive that help, your life will just be this continuous um, merry-go-round of disappointment and letdowns and heartbreaks and heartaches. But you don't have to live that way anymore.